Turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 2. The book of Hebrews chapter 2. Starting at verse 1, it says, We must pay more careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away. Starting at verse 1, the word therefore automatically links us to chapter 1. When it says we have to pay more careful attention, therefore, what is he talking about? Therefore what? Remember chapter 1. The author of Hebrews is presenting the case that Jesus is better. He's better than the revelation that was given in the Old Testament, how God appeared at different times to the prophets in different ways. He appeared to them through visions, through dreams, gave them the law through Moses, and we saw that the law was connected or angels were connected to the law in Deuteronomy as well as in Stephen's account and also even in Ephesians there's a mention where the angels were part of that transition between Moses getting the law and that law coming to the people and so the angels were held in high esteem but we saw that Jesus was God himself stamped in the flesh in human form and so he is better because of who he is. And God used to talk to us to this way, but it was not as clear as we see in the person of Jesus. And we talked about that more on Sunday. And so that's the connection that we have. Because of who Jesus is, we must pay more careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away. How much more important is it if God himself is among us and is declaring something, how much should that capture our attention? Have you ever been in a group of people? This happens a lot when you're with a group of pastors and you're at a pastor's conference and you're with your buddies, you know, and you're talking to this guy and he's from, you know, the church in Timbuktu somewhere, you know, and it's a small little church and they got 20 people and, you know, you got a, a small church, you know, it might be, you know, a few hundred people and there's another guy with a church that's, you know, mediocre, but then pastor so-and-so comes and he's got a, a church of 10,000 people and when he walks in you know and he says something oh everyone listens to him everyone caters why because he's prominent or a CEO of a corporation you walk in and the office place is going and everyone's just busy talking about whatever and all of a sudden you see that the CEO the manager whoever is up and up comes into that room it changes the dynamics because someone of prominence has just entered the room you give them attention well, how much attention should we give if God himself has become human and is working among us? How should that impact our attention? And he tells us that we need to give more attention, therefore, so that we do not drift away. And this is really important, that we don't drift away. Remember that the author is talking to the Jewish Christians who are captured by their tradition. Their tradition has been all that they've known. It has been a pride to hold on to their tradition. And now 
something better is coming along than what they thought and were secure in. He says, be careful. You give more attention to this than you drift away from what is better. Have you ever gone out to the beach, you know, and you're out in the water? I, I used to do this when I was younger, and I used to go body surfing, you know, go boogie boarding. And you're out there in the water, and, and you go out for a while, and you're catching waves, and, you know, you go in, and you're at lifeguard station 17, and then you go in the water, and, you know, 45 minutes later, you look up, and it's lifeguard station 12. And you're like, oh, what happened, you know, and you've just been drifting. You got in and the tide slowly carries you down. You don't even notice it. It seems like you're in the same place. You keep going back to the shore, but you've actually traveled quite a ways. Why? Because you weren't paying attention. You weren't aware of your surroundings. The next thing you know, you're not where you're supposed to be. You know, when you're a little kid, that can kind of freak you out. Or when you're a parent watching your little kids, you're always watching, there are they, where are they? Okay, he's got the red shorts on, you know, you're kind of looking for him. Okay, that's them. Oh, hey, you got to call out to him. Get back here. Come on, you're, you're going too far away. You're drifting. Well, that's what the writer's here saying. You need to pay attention to who Jesus is, how prominent he is to be in your life, lest you drift away and go back to your traditions. Go back to the things that aren't as important as God speaking to you through his son. Don't let that happen to you. And so that's the point that he's making here. Verse two, he says, for if the message spoken by angels was binding and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? This salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God also testified to it by signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. And so now he's saying it was important, your traditions, the law that was given, it was very important. In fact, if you swayed from the law, there was consequences. And if that was binding, if that was something that was to capture you, hold your feet to the fire, so to speak, how much more is this? How much more if we neglect so great a salvation are we in danger? And we need to recognize this because this is very important. Paul wrote about this in 2 Corinthians 1.10. He says, he has delivered us from such a deadly peril he will and he will deliver us on him we have set our hope that he will continue to deliver us. And he's talking about Jesus. And one of the things we need to recognize that if God went to such lengths to bring salvation, to such lengths that he became flesh, dwelt among us, went to the cross and died for us and rose again, if he went to that length, how important is it? to us and what are the dangers if we do not take heed to it we need to recognize that as glorious as it was that jesus gave his life that if we don't embrace that what is the detriment to us if we would neglect so great salvation and if the law was so important to the nation of israel to judge them to choose life or death blessing or cursing Either allow my law to guide you or you are going to be banished and you will find God's judgment on you. If that was the case, how much more if we reject who Jesus is? 
Jesus said it this way, and we talked about this Sunday as well. I did not come to condemn the world, but to save the world. That whoever believed in me would have eternal life. Whoever does not believe in me is condemned already because they not, have not believed in the only begotten from the Father. You see, condemnation rests on you if you will not believe in God's gift. And so the writer here is saying, don't drift away from how important this is because how much more dangerous is it if you neglect this than just your tradition? As the stakes get higher, it gets more important. You know, we're not just playing for pennies now. We're, we're, we're serious. And if God gave his son and you reject that, how serious is that? And he tells us how we, he confirmed the salvation. He tells us that it was confirmed by those who heard him, the disciples. God also testified it by signs, wonders, various miracles. The things that Jesus did was a testimony to who he was. Nicodemus went to Jesus and said, we know you're from God. No man can do the things you do unless God is with them. When they asked Jesus, how do we know that you're him? John's disciples sent, went to Jesus. John sent his disciples to Jesus saying, ask Jesus if he's the one or if we should look for someone else. And Jesus told John's disciples, tell them that the blind see, the deaf hear, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he that does not stumble because of me. What he did was quote Isaiah what the Messiah was to do, was these miraculous things. I am the one. You need to pay attention to me. I am the promised one. And so he proved it by what he did. And the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. God then bringing in the new covenant that we have confirmation with God by the Holy Spirit himself. And so in verse 5 it says... It is not to the angels that he has subjected the world to come about which we are speaking, but there is a place where someone has testified. What is man that thou art mindful of him, the son of man, that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor and put everything under his feet." Let's stop right there. Now he's, the author is going on and he's going to begin to talk about not only is Jesus better than the angels in the old covenant, but now he's going to talk about Jesus is a man. And he's going to explain why this is so important because it does us no good if Jesus is just God. If he is not man, then he cannot stand in our place. And that's why he says, the angels, he's never said this to, what is man that thou art mindful of him? And he's quoting from the Psalms, what is man that you would care? He's lower than the angels in position. He, he doesn't have that place. He is less than in position, but you've crowned him with glory. Why would you do that? To a man. And, and that's the question that is being posed here. If man is in this position lower than the angels, why have you crowned him with glory? And we know from the Genesis account that man was created in God's image and that man was given command over the earth. 
In Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 all the way through 29, it talks about how God created him in his own image, in his own likeness. He made them male and female. He created them. And then he tells man to go and name all the animals and you're to have dominion over all the animals and their position in the earth. Man was supposed to be over God's creation. God had given him that place. But we know what happened. Man fell. He sinned. He disobeyed God. And when he did that, then the creation became under a curse. And in a sense, what happened is man who had dominion, who had control, who had the rule over the earth, gave the title deed to Satan, to the devil. Devil said, if you do this, you'll be like God. Man did it. Man disobeyed. He listened to the devil instead of to God. And so now he became submissive to the creation. The creation had dominion over him. It was through thorns that he was going to be, you know, tilling and through the sweat of his brow and women are going to have pain in childbirth and, you know, now all this calamity and confusion has entered into the world. Why? Because now the, the world has been handed over to another. Man was supposed to have dominion over it. God gave him dominion over it, but now man has lost it. And so he's talking about how God had given man dominion. He had given him, crowned him with glory and honor and put everything under his feet. And you have to think about that. The, what that means. When you look at creation and you see how vast and how great creation is, what is man that, man, that you are mindful of him? That God would think about us. And we talked about this again Sunday, how he numbers the hair on our head, that our, his thoughts of us are more than the sands that are in all the seashores. Why would God think about us like that? I mean, we are a speck on a planet that is a speck in the universe, that is a speck in a galaxy that is a speck in the galaxies of galaxies. What is man that you are mindful? I mean, that kind of get, makes you feel small, doesn't it? And it, it should. It should make us speculate, you know? <laughs> hey, wh what are we that God would think of us in this way that would give us significance, that would crown us and put us over this creation? And so the author is asking us to think about these things. And he says, in putting everything under him, in verse 8, God left nothing that is subject to him. Yet pres at present, we do not see everything subject to him. In other words, God has put everything subject to him, but that's not how it looks right now. It doesn't look like everything is subject to him. And he's talking about now Jesus. Jesus is coming onto the scene. In fact, we see in verse 9, Jesus' name appears for the first time. But Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. This reminds me of when Jesus stood before Pilate in John's Gospel in chapter 19, and Pilate stood Jesus up there after he'd been beaten. And he says, behold the man. 
The author here is saying, Behold the man. Jesus, God stamped in flesh. All creation is under his feet. We don't see it right now. But behold the man. See who he is. This is the same Jesus who was described in the previous chapter. This was the Jesus who is the image of the invisible God. This is the Jesus who is better than the angels, but here it says he is lower than the angels. Now, one of the things that we have to understand is the difference between position and the the difference, excuse me, between character. A person can be in a better position, more important, and not be a better in character. For example, say the President of the United States. Barack Obama is greater than me in position. He's the President of the United States. It does not mean he is better than me as a person. See what I'm saying? One has to do with status, one has to do with character. Jesus is lower than the angels. It has to do with position but he has an inheritance that is better because of who he is. He was made lower than the angels. Why? Because he became the man. So that he could identify with us, so that he could suffer death, he was made lower than the angels positionally, but not in his character not in who he really is. And so when we see that he is lower than the angels, he is crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. And and it actually has the idea of taste the bitterness of death for everyone. It was important that Jesus be able to taste the bitterness of death for us. And he tells us why. He says, in bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God for whom and through whom everything exists should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. And that word suffering, it it actually is plural. It's through sufferings. You see, the shameful death was considered an embarrassment to the Jews. To, To die on a cross was a shame. And so the struggle that they were having with is how could the Messiah be put to shame? That's something that they were having a hard time because of their belief and their tradition to reconcile. How could could the Messiah die such a shameful death? And, And the author is saying that he had to die this shameful death. He had to go through these things. They would need to see that as his glory, it, that this wasn't just a shame, it was actually his glory and their hope. That they would see that this death was not a mistake. It wasn't a tragedy. It was the will of God and their grace. So what they thought was something that was a tragedy, something that was a shame, something that they thought was just awful, God was using it to be a stamp of his glory. And just the opposite of what they thought. He was made perfect to his qualification as author, verse 10, where it talks about 
bringing many souls to glory, it was fitting that God for whom and through whom everything exists should make the author, and that word author, uh, it says different things in different translations. It might be the leader. It might be the captain. The idea is he is the one who is in charge, that he might bring the author of their salvation perfect through sufferings. And that idea, perfect, it's not that Jesus would, you know, become better as far as his quality, but he would come, he'd be someone who could actually identify with the creature. In other words, he was made like us, and he became perfect in his identification through death. Not that he got better at being God, he got better at identifying with us through the death. And so here we're coming at the heart of the incarnation, and I know these words are kind of kind of the way he says it, it's just like, what are you talking about? It's the author and, you know, dying and lower than angels. You're talking about a lot of stuff. And what he's trying to do here is bring to this Jewish mindset, the law was here, the people of God were here, and God was going to do something substantial in reigning over us. God did this by becoming like us, suffering death to identify with us, in fact, he became perfect as the author, as the captain, as the leader of our salvation. He was made complete by the things that he suffered. That was his crown. That was the glorious moment that he came and did these things. So he became the leader of their salvation, the captain of their salvation, through the things that he suffered. And the suffering isn't just the death on the cross. The suffering are the things that we go through. The heartaches that we feel, the difficulties that we struggle with, physically, emotionally, spiritually, the hardships that press on every one of us in one way or another, he suffered like that. We're going to see later on that we have a high priest that is not distant from our sufferings, but in every way was tempted like us. These sufferings connect him to who we are. And it's important to recognize that he identified with us and was made perfect, complete in this identity through those sufferings. Verse 11 says, both the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. Now, we have now a family likeness because of Jesus to God. And he's not ashamed to call us his brothers. I remember years ago when the kids were smaller, they were playing and there was another kid who was a neighbor and they were playing and you know how things happen with kids, how they're, you know, they're playing together and someone gets hurt and they blamed this kid, and they were saying, you're being mean to him, and, and this little commotion came out, and these kids came running over, and they said, my kids were being mean to this kid, and he's our brother, and he was adopted by their family, and he was their stepbrother, but I, I loved how they said, and he's our brother, you know, he's with us now, he used to belong somewhere else, but now he's with us, he's our brother, they weren't ashamed to call him their brother. They now had a likeness. 
they became a part of that family. If you're adopted, you take on the name, that adopted name, and now you are identified with that family. Why? You bear their name. Your birth certificate gets changed, and now you have a birth certificate with your new adopted name, as if you were born with that name. That's what we gained with Jesus. He's not ashamed to call us his brothers. He says, I'll take it. You're now part of my family. I have identified with you so completely that I am not ashamed to call you brothers. And even though I am holy and you're not, I will bring you into my holiness and I'm not ashamed of who you are. God is not ashamed of who we are. He's made us his brothers through the person of Jesus Christ. We're starting to see the importance of the incarnation and what it does, how it brings us unholy into his family through the one who is holy, Jesus, because of what Jesus has done. And that's what he's going to continue to tell us here. In verse 12 he says, I will declare your name to my brothers in the presence of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, he says, here am I and the children of God and the children God has given me. This is Jesus saying that we are now a part of his family. He's declaring us his brothers in the congregation, singing praises to God that he trusts in him, the children God has given him. Uh, verse 14, it says, since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death. That is the devil. We're going back now to the garden. We're going back to that point. Since the children have flesh and blood, that's us, he too shared in their humanity, that's Jesus, so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death. That is the devil. He is now partaking in our likeness, having that common bond with us. Jesus is not some superhuman spirit. He is like us, and it is because he is like us and attached to us that he is able to deal with the anguish of our life and with our sin. Because he became flesh, because he became totally human, he could now destroy the work of the devil because Jesus is without sin. And so here we see, once again, we're, we're focused on the incarnation. If Jehovah's Witnesses come to you and they say, well, Jesus is the spirit, that's not what the author of Hebrews is saying here. This is a pretty clear declaration that just as we have flesh and blood, he too shared in our humanity. It was necessary so that his death could reverse what ours could not. In other words, the death of one who was sinless could buy back what we forfeited in the garden. What we gave up because we sinned and we, we were given and trusted with God, by God with the world and the creation and we blew it, we handed it over to the devil. We listened to him instead of to God. We handed the creation over. Well, Jesus didn't sin. And now the price that he paid, his death, is enough to redeem. And the word redeem means buy back. Buy back 
the creation of God, but we don't quite see it complete yet. You guys following me as this is coming through? Okay, good. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 56 and 57, it says, The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God. He gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. He overturns what happened, and Jesus is the only one who can. How important is he? He's vital, not just for you and for me, not just, you know, to to save our souls, which is vital, but to save humanity, to buy back what man lost. He is the last Adam. The first Adam forfeited everything. The last Adam, Jesus, redeemed it, bought it back. And that's what we see taking place, that he was able to destroy the power of death that is the devil. In verse 15 it says, And free those, that's us, who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Now this is an interesting phrase because it, it can mean a number of things. The fear of death is something that I think grips every person until you know of someone who has victory over death. In other words, death is it. Death is like what happens after you die and people are wanting to know, well, we know Jesus died. Jesus rose again. We don't have to fear death because someone has conquered it. If Jesus didn't conquer death, we would wonder. And there'd be all kinds of speculations. I'm going to come back as a bunny rabbit, you know? I, I mean... You can have all kinds of ideas and theories, but there is no substance. You have no way of knowing it. It is just speculation until you have someone who has conquered death, who has been victorious, and is able to then bring peace to us so that we're no longer slaves to the terror of death because we have confidence in him that he has destroyed that work. And so it says... Free those in their lives that were held as slavery by the fear of death. Verse 16, it says, For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's seed. He didn't do this for the angels. He did this for the descendants of Abraham. He did this for God's people. He did this so that we could identify with it and be again bought back. This is once again talking that he delivers us from the power of Satan in his death, and he is our high priest. The descendants of Abraham, he's now bringing us into Jesus fulfilling what God was trying to do through the law, through the prophets, through the priesthood. Jesus is the one who fulfilled those things. And so we see that he is not doing this for the angels, but for Abraham's seed. Verse 17, it says, For this reason... He had to be made like his brothers in every way in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. And so now we're going to deal with Jesus as a high priest and we're going to deal with him in two aspects. Christ's priestly ministry being Godward and also being 
man word. And the first that we're going to look at is just here in verse 17 that it, it's God word. That Jesus had to be like his brothers. In other words, he had to be made flesh in every way in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. The high priest would go into the temple, would offer sacrifice for the people. As he would offer that sacrifice, and then he would take the blood and he would sprinkle it on the altar. He was doing that to cover the sins of the people. He was atoning for the nation. So he was going to God for them. Jesus did that. Himself being the offering to atone for the people. He is going to God and saying, I will cover the sin of these people. How? With the blood. The blood, of the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sin. And so God had to give his son to take away the sin. It could only temporarily be a shadow of what was to come. It was a glimpse. Those sacrifices were a glimpse of the sacrifice. It was a glimpse, a shadow of what was to come. And you see, the substance is better than the shadow. My wife came into the room and the lights were on and her shadow was on the wall. I wouldn't go up and hug the shadow, say, it's good to see you. I'm so glad you're here and kiss the wall, you know, on the shadow. You'd put me in the loony bin. Why? It's a shadow. It, it doesn't have the dimension. It doesn't have the depth that she does in person in the same way the shadow of the sacrifices were pointing to the substance of who Jesus is. And so now Jesus, in every way, comes to us, and, or comes before God for us, that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. He had to be a high priest that could take that role and cover the sins of the people. The high priest used to do that with the blood of the bulls and, and goats, but Jesus did it with his own blood. In verse 18, it says, Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. And this is his ministry, manward. Not only does he cover our sin before God, but he identifies with us. He is one of us. That's why Jesus wept. That's why Jesus sang. That's why Jesus laughed. That's why Jesus, you know, embraced the children that came to him. Why? He, he was like us. And you see, because he is like us, he is able to help us when we are tempted because he's been there. He's been there. Remember when Jesus was being tempted in the wilderness. It says that Satan drove him out to the wilderness. And Satan said to him, If you're the Son of God, turn these rocks into bread. Jesus was starving. And what did Jesus say? Man, 
shall not live by bread alone. He didn't say, the Son of God shall not live by bread alone. He said, man shall not live. See, it is not God who is going to defeat you, Satan. It is a man submitted to God who will defeat you. And Jesus didn't respond to any of the attacks of Satan as God. He responded to them all as a man. And being tempted, he is able to secure us, to strengthen us when we are being tempted because he did it. He showed us that we can do it too. I know that we have all gone through difficult times, maybe in in our marriages, maybe with our health, maybe just in life in general. And those people who have been through similar things as we have are usually the ones who are able to bring the most comfort because they've been there. I don't know how many times I've been able to counsel married couples and be able to say, I know what you're going through. Because I've been there. My wife and I, we, we have struggled. We have battled. We have fought our way through just where you're at right now. We've been there. And I know what that's like. And I'm able to give them counsel on those things. Or, or parents with kids. My kids, you know, what do I do? I, I, I know what you're going through. I've been there. And I'm able to advise them because I've had experience where they're at. I know what they're going through. I, I can identify with it. And look, I'm alive to this day. I'm proof. You can make it through. Your marriage can see through it. You can live past your kids' adolescent years. <laughs> Why? I've been there. You see, our high priest has been there. He's been tempted in every way, just like us, but didn't sin. And because he has come out victorious, he is able to help us while we're being tempted. He is able to give us the guideline to follow and the example to follow. We follow in his steps. And we serve as he served. We live as he lived. He is our example. And, and that's the amazing thing that we have in the person of Jesus. We do not just have a savior who delivers us from our sin. We have an example that we follow, that we can walk in, that we can see how we are to live, that we know how it can be done. And because he did it as a man, we can do it too. He's forgiven us. He's dealt with God on our behalf. And now he's given us an example. He's our high priest covering our sin, going before God for us. And he is our priest, high priest giving us the example and how we should live. And once again, we see that Jesus is better than the angels and Jesus is the perfect high priest. And he's going to go through the priesthood a little bit later in chapter 7 when he deals with Melchizedek and uh, the Aaronic priesthood. We'll, we'll talk about that later. And now he's going to move into being better or greater than Moses. 
because that was another person that they held in high esteem. And, and all these illustrations of who Jesus is, once again, we're saying he's greater, he's superior, he's better. He's better than the angels. He's better than the priesthood that you know of. He's better than Moses. He's the best. He's the best. He is the real deal. He is the substance and not the shadow. Everything before him was just a shadow. Now, why would you leave the substance for the shadow? Why would you turn away from what is genuine to what is less than? Because that is the danger that they are dealing with in the Hebrew people. Dealing with something less than. And it is a danger that we can deal with too. If we go to our traditions instead of to the substance of who Jesus is. You know, it can become a tradition to go to church. It can become a tradition to do all these religious things. And you can have your tra traditions and drift away from the substance. And that's the danger. Don't drift away and miss it. It's like the boat that's heading for the safe harbor, but it's drifting away. And, you know, a little slumber, and pretty soon you're in a dangerous place. Because you didn't recognize, oh, I, I needed to stay in this place. Remember that Jesus is what it's about. It's not about the church. It's not about a membership. It's not about how much you read. It's not about all the good things that you do. It's about the person of Jesus and you being like him and connecting to him. He is the real deal. He is the best. Let's pray. Father, it's so hard to grasp who you are completely and all that you've done through the person of Jesus. Um, we we can see it and understand it, but only to a point, Lord. It is something that we do need to live and experience as well as understand. Father, that we need to surrender our lives by faith to you and follow after you and talk to you and have that active and living relationship with you and to recognize once again who you are and that you are mindful of us, that you have become like us so that you could identify with us, Lord, so that you could save us. And Lord, might that grip our hearts and our attention, and might we continue to just fall in love with you, Lord, and all that you've done for us. Might we see the importance of why you became man and made your living here with us and what that means to us, God. I pray that we would embrace that, the truth of who you are. Lord, I just thank you again for this time. I pray these words are clear. I pray that we would understand the importance of you becoming human like us so that you could go before the Father on our behalf and that you could be our example and our high priest. Thank you again for your goodness and your faithfulness. And, and Lord, even now I pray for the trip tomorrow and the group going to Mexico.
I pray that you would move upon our hearts. Father, that we would be an example to those people, just like you are the example to us. Jesus, that we would represent you and that we would honor you with the things that we do. I pray, Lord, for the hearts of all these young people that are going. Lord, for the opportunity for dissension and uh, attitudes to be there. I pray that you would stop that, Lord, and you would nip it at the bud. And instead, Lord, just as there's opportunity for the tension, Lord, there is opportunity for the genuine and for the work of your spirit to flow in such a powerful way through each of them that they would knit their hearts together with you that we would be one and we would see you do the miraculous through us god as we step out lord meet us there and work and i pray for each one who's going lord that even now your spirit would start to just brood upon them may people see you in us I ask it in Jesus' name.